0: how are you guys <laughs> you didn't get your popcorn I won't eat in front of you my mom taught me better than that good to see you all I know some of you maybe now I'm gonna talk with my mouthful this is an interesting night for us some of you hated that movie some of you didn't see that movie some of you maybe have loved that movie but basically the story is written by someone by the name of Elizabeth Gilbert Elizabeth Gilbert was living what most would say was the American dream she was a travel writer which meant that she would travel to different places all around the world and write about it pretty good gig huh how many of you say sign me up you don't like to travel how many of you would like to travel and write about it okay several of you I think the coolest gig would be to be paid to ride a motorcycle all over the country and write about riding the motorcycle so if any of you are looking for that let me know she had she had written three books won a national award for one of the books that she had written she had an apartment in Manhattan and a big new beautiful house in a suburb of New York City called Hudson Valley she had a devoted husband and was planning to start a family there was only one problem and and this is her telling her own story the problem was she was miserable Utterly miserable. In fact, she says that most nights found her in the middle of the night into the wee hours of the morning in the bathroom, sobbing uncontrollably, over and over and over, crying out, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to live in this big house. I don't want to have a baby, over and over again. Like many people in our culture and our world today, who have pursued with reckless abandon what they think the American dream or whatever dream will bring them contentment and fulfillment and have found it wanting and and inside are empty and longing for something more. That's where she found herself. And so one night, as the story is told by her, at 3 o'clock in the morning, her desperation reached a peak, and she did something she had never done before in her life. She prayed. Now, she addressed the prayer to God, but she's quick to say in her book that she could have just as easily used terms like Jehovah or Allah or Shiva or Brahma or Vishnu or Zeus or even simply that, which is part of the Sanskrit in Hinduism. But God for her was the name that felt most warm. She says that she was born a Protestant, that she is culturally. A Christian but not theologically and the one hang-up the the biggest hang-up I should say that she has with Christianity is it insists on on the idea that Christ is the only way to God and and she can't get beyond that hang-up which by the way is true of many in our culture isn't it that that that's a challenge for people to come to accept and so we're going to talk a little bit about that more a little bit later on as we journey through this. So uh, she prays for the first time in her life, and her prayer is is pretty basic. It's a simple prayer. It basically says, help, please tell me what to do. Through her sobbing, her weeping, she cries out, help, please tell me what to do. And then she says something happens. Abruptly, her sobbing stops. Just instantly suddenly she stops crying and she hears a voice now it's not it's not a voice uh, of Old Testament Charlton Heston Ten Commandments booming to her she says it's and this is really key I believe to the telling of her story it is actually her own voice that she says speaks from within her, but it's in a way that she's never heard her voice before with a calmness and a compassion that she's never known before. And the voice simply says, Liz, go back to bed. That's the instruction. She says she wouldn't describe it as a religious conversion, but a religious conversation. Now what follows, seven months later, she would divorce her husband and go through Uh, A a nasty long very difficult very painful divorce and in her own telling and I appreciate the transparency with which she talks about her life and her story she dives into an affair with a man who's ten years younger than her that also ends very painfully long story short all of this leads to a a year-long quest that she describes as a quest or a search for everything. In fact, the subtitle of the book is one woman's search for everything across Italy, India, and Indonesia. It's a search to find balance, to find meaning, to find herself. And it would take her to Italy in pursuit of pleasure. It would take thus the eat part. How many of you can at least agree on that, that Italy food, mmm, mmm, okay. Some of you don't like Italian food either, okay. From Italy, it leads her to India, where she studies at a guru's ashram, and then finally to Bali, where she studies under a medicine man and eventually falls in love again. Not with the medicine man, but with the man that she meets in Bali. Now, here's the conclusion Here's the conclusion that she comes to. This is in her words. She says, God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly the way you are. Somewhere within us all, there does exist a supreme self who is eternally at peace. That supreme self is our true identity, universal and divine. Now, the book is called Eat, Pray, Love, and you saw a clip from the movie that came out a few years ago now the challenge for us the temptation for us for many of us in this room is is to dive in and just rip apart this person and her quest and her conclusions about God because because many of us in this room would strongly disagree with the conclusions that she came to our tendency sometimes is is to argue it's to be right it's to win and for certain there is a place for respectful loving debate especially when it comes to truth claims I mean there may be no other area more important that we learn to embrace respectful loving debate not all truth claims are equal all right and so there is a place for that however my hope tonight my desire today in in our message is to highlight and try to unpack the universal quest that human beings have to find meaning in life. It's a universal quest. My desire today is to maybe do a little like what Paul did when he went to Athens and when he found things in a culture that was completely different, that had completely different values, completely different gods, and he looked for things that he could praise to be a springboard to communicate something that was true. That's my desire today in our talk. Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist and also a Holocaust survivor, said this about the search for meaning. He said, it is the primary motivational force in man. This search for meaning Dallas Willard says it this way meaning is not a luxury for us it is a kind of spiritual oxygen we might say that enables our souls to live it's a spiritual oxygen Dallas Willard says it matters this quest for meaning what is life about Is there meaning to life? Is there purpose? Can we know what that purpose and meaning might be? Does it come from the supreme self, a divinity within, or does it come from something outside of ourselves? I especially hope it has been my prayer that today God would somehow allow me to speak to those of you who might be here who are spiritual seekers, who are on that very quest. And if in fact you are, the fact that you're here is evidence of the journey that you're on, this quest for what is true. And where do I find meaning? And is there a purpose to all of this that we call, that we call life as we know it and understand it? Now, I must be honest with you, I obviously have a bias. I obviously come to the table with a, with a bias. I believe with everything that is within me that the narrative of Scripture speaks most fully to the deepest questions of life and meaning. I believe the Bible speaks most fully to those questions of life. That doesn't mean that it leaves no questions unanswered. It doesn't even mean that there's not the tension of doubt. We know that, we understand that. If we're honest, all of us would recognize there are still questions and there still is that tension of doubt. In fact, the Bible itself has many of its unlikely heroes who grappled with, with fear and with doubt and with questions and frustration and even at points in their life with depression. This book is not sanitized for the reader. It gives us all the picture. All right, and so we know that but I've shared this with you before I've come to embrace it I think as a wonderful metaphor I believe there is, there was and is an intended story for humanity humanity is broken because we strayed from that intended story but the God revealed in the Bible as creator is actively pursuing humanity to offer us a better story than the story we've chosen and that is a story of meaning and purpose so we're gonna go on a journey if you have a bulletin flip it over you might want to jot down some notes the first thing I would offer to you today is that meaning presupposes a creator meaning presupposes a creator now i know that western secularists will tell us that if you want meaning in life it is a diy project how many of you know what diy is how many, okay if you, if you have cable and have the home garden i don't know what the channel is you know i mean that's the rage today do it yourself that's the rage and some of you have damaged walls because you thought what you saw on television you could do. I'm wise enough to not even try. My wife can actually do that stuff. I am not allowed near hammers at my house. That is the way to meaning that we that we would get from from a secular humanist point of view is that you must do it yourself. You have to come up with it yourself because there is no grand designer of the universe, much less you, there's no grand designer of you, so whatever your purpose is going to be, you, need, you have to will it to be. You pick it and you do it. But we understand, we have to understand logically that at the end of the day, if there's no creator, if there's no grand designer, if there's no grand artist at work in our world, then it's all really ultimately meaningless regardless of what we tell ourselves about purpose. Ultimately, we will be extinct, and we are accidentally here. Anyway, Bertrand Russell said it this way, Man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. Man's origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms." Ultimately, meaningless. There there is no purpose. paleontologist by the name of Simpson said that man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have us in mind. Now, on the other hand, the essence, uh, and, and this is a general statement, but the essence of Eastern faiths is really to eliminate desire completely. The idea is that suffering is a result of desire, and so the goal is to eliminate all fires of all desires and eventually one day be absorbed, the individual self absorbed into the infinite, called nirvana, where we would cease to exist. And so purpose, the quest for meaning would really be one of those desires. The biblical narrative, however, says follow the call of the Creator fundamentally that's what it says so the idea that all roads lead to the same place actually contradicts what most all of the roads themselves claim they are not fundamentally the same they don't even claim to be heading to the same place alright so that's the first thing secondly and this is the most important thing we talk about in hindsight had I not turned in my outline earlier in the week I probably would have only had two points sorry I turn in the outline you get four All right. second one meaning is found primarily in a person meaning is found primarily in a person this is where the biblical story takes a dramatic and even scandalous turn this is where all parallels cease to exist in most faiths and philosophies and strains of thought The quest for meaning is the great ascent of the seekers toward their their desired goals. It's an ascent on the part of the seekers to attain. And there is this conviction that that ascent is achievable. If I work hard enough, if I make the effort of mind and of will, I can make it to the good, whatever that good is. In other words, the mountain is climbable. It is within human reach. The biblical account is completely different from that. The biblical account is captured, I would suggest, maybe best, in the words of Oz Guinness, who wrote a book called Long Journey Home. Highly recommended. Long Journey Home by Oz Guinness. Here's what he says. Listen carefully to this. The secret of the search is not our great ascent, but the great descent of God toward us. Instead of the seeker finding love, love seeks out the seeker. Not because the seeker is worthy of love, but simply because love's nature is to love regardless of the worthiness or merit of the one loved. Love seeks out the seeker. The biblical narrative is not, of, not one of humans being able to ascend to that place, but it's recognizing we never can, and so God descends to us. Very different than any other strain of thought or philosophy that we know in our culture and in our world, and so God became one of us in the person of Jesus because the ascent was too great. The mountain was too high, the chasm was too wide. The secret of the quest to meaning does not lie in our brilliance or our intellect, it lies in God's grace. That when I was unlovable, he loved me anyway. That when I deserved death, he gave his life so that I could live. That's the secret to the quest to meaning in life. The Bible paints a picture of a God who runs toward his foolish, wayward son, not away from him. The picture God paints in the Bible is of a God who reaches out his hand and physically touches a leper whose disease has removed him from all community, from all connection with human beings, and God touches him physically in the midst of his disease. It's a picture of a God who eats with sinners and outcasts and the marginalized. Who is king of all kings and yet opens his kingdom to the poor in spirit, to the meek, to those who mourn, to prostitutes, to tax collectors to the kind of people that don't make up the kind of kingdoms that exist in that culture. That's the God that is pictured in Scripture, a God who descended into the mess of our broken world and took the very worst that human depravity could ever dish out. He took on the cross. And for that reason, there's a man named Paul who radically encountered Jesus, who thought he knew the purpose and meaning of his life, and it was to destroy the work of these ones who claimed to follow Jesus, who set out to destroy them, to murder them. He encountered Jesus and discovered new purpose, and now in a Roman prison, he writes a letter. And in that letter, a letter, by the way, that's all about joy, it's as though he explodes when he begins to talk about Jesus. Listen to what he says. Follow along in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead and then he says not that i've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect but i press on to take hold of that for which christ jesus took hold of me brothers i do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it but one thing i do forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead i press on toward the goal to win the prize for which god has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Meaning is found primarily in a person, and that person is Jesus. And it's not intended to be an arrogant claim that this religion is superior to other religions, it is the belief that fundamentally God is our creator who created humanity with meaning and with purpose, but humanity strayed from that intended story to live our own story. And in living our own story, we brought brokenness of the very worst kind into the human experience and all of creation. And the ascent back was insurmountable. It was impossible. So God descended to us in the person of jesus to make a way back that's why jesus says i am the way the truth and the life thirdly meaning is more journey than destination it's more meaning than or journey than destination i don't mean aimlessly wandering, there is a destination in view, and that's going to be part of this series. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Paul says, I haven't obtained all of this yet. I haven't arrived yet, but I press on. Meaning in life is an unfolding journey as we walk in relationship with Jesus. Again, Oz Guinness says, the end of the quest for meaning is the beginning of the journey of faith. And it is a journey. As we discover meaning for life in the one who made us, revealed in his son Jesus, we begin to live our lives on purpose, intentionally. We begin to realize that we are here for a reason. We are, not, we are no accidental collocation of atoms. We have purpose It's not because we willed it from our inner self. It's because God loved us too much to leave us in the mess that our rebellion created. So he rescued us and he reconciled us to himself and he calls us to live for something bigger. Finally, meaning requires commitment. Meaning requires commitment. Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on. There are four phases that Oz Guinness talks about in his book Long Journey Home for any genuine seeker of meaning in life, four phases. He says the first phase is questions. They begin to ask questions, and and many things can cause those questions. It can be pain or crisis or suffering. It can be overcome and overwhelmed by beauty. It can actually be discovery. As science discovers whether you want to go big and look at the universe and the galaxy and all of the intricate things that make Earth the perfect place just right to sustain human life or whether you want to go to the smallest things, now some 150 subatomic particles and the relationship of particles and the energy and the way that they move, whether you go big or whether you go small, you come to the conclusion, even even in science, that we don't understand it all, that there must be something that has designed this that's holding this all together. Questions begin the search. Second phase, he says, is answers. And here's what he means. What are the answers that are offered in philosophies or faiths or strains of thoughts? what are the answers offered the third phase is evidence and that's very simply do the answers really hold up do they really hold water does that duck hunt I've been watching Duck Dynasty lately Anybody seen that It was a good Duck Dynasty quote does that does it hold water is there evidence for those answers and finally the last phase is commitment Because the truth is, we understand this, in any quest for truth, we must decide for ourselves, will we adjust our lives to the truth, or will we adjust truth to our lives? All of us are faced with that decision. According to Christian Smith, who is a sociologist, the fastest growing religion, we've talked about this briefly before, the fastest growing religion in America, especially among teenagers and young adults is really not an organized religion at all. It's something that he calls moralistic therapeutic deism, which is a mouthful. But in a nutshell, there are five tenets of of what is shaping the next generation of our culture. And here they are quickly. One, there's a belief that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on Earth. Secondly, God simply wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most other world religions. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourthly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And finally, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now let me just say that the story revealed in Scripture is so much more. God is not a therapist, but king, the king, a loving, caring king that doesn't just interject himself when there's a problem, but he is a God who longs to walk with you each and every day of your life in a loving relationship that is shaping you from the inside out as you walk in obedience to him and become the person he's called you to be. His purpose for you far exceeds wanting you to simply be happy and feel good about yourself. He wants to fill your life with joy That is not dependent upon the circumstances around you, and love that covers a multitude of sins, and a purpose that compels you to selflessness instead of selfishness, to contentedness instead of consumerism, to gratitude instead of greed, to forgiveness instead of revenge. He wants to put within you a purpose that makes your heart beat faster that causes you to cry when you talk about it, that compels you to give your all, that you're willing to give your life for, you're willing to sacrifice for. God wants that kind of meaning and purpose for you. That's his intent. A purpose that even shapes the way you trust him when life is falling apart and when you encounter suffering. And not just to be good, and nice and fair to others, but to truly and sacrificially love people, even your enemies, to do good to those who mean you harm, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God, as the ancient prophet told us. His kingdom is about surrender. It's the way of sacrifice for the sake of others. And heaven, when we die, is far less than God's intent. God's final is resurrection in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, does that mean that people who don't follow Jesus never do good for others or never live with a sense of purpose in their lives? We all know that's not true. There are people in our community who are serving the needs of others, who have no faith in Jesus, and yet, quite frankly, often serve with more vigor and more passion and more sacrifice than many people who claim to follow Jesus. But I would suggest even those are glimpses of of the reality that human beings, whether they realize it or not, are created in the image of God. Do all roads lead to God? No. No. But Jesus is on every road pursuing people, seeking them out, the hound of heaven as he is described, to invite people to the life that he has for us. He's the God who saw the hopelessness of our ascent to him, so he descended to us, the God who stooped to rescue us. Will you bow your heads? I want us to close with a prayer and this is my invitation. I wanna pray for people who are here in this room tonight and you would say, I am on a quest, I'm on a journey and for whatever reason, this, this is the moment that God has brought you to where you want to trust your life to Jesus and the forgiveness of sin that is only found in him the one who can reconcile you to the God who made you this is the moment I want to pray for you for some of you you're on the journey you're on the quest and maybe even tonight you're saying not not now I encourage you, continue the quest. Maybe you're here and you're skeptical. I just invite you with an open heart and an open mind to ask questions, to search out the evidence. The narrative of scripture can withstand your questions. Go on a journey. Have the integrity to go on a journey, on a quest. So I wanna pray for people in that place. Secondly, I wanna pray for some Christians in this room who have said yes to follow Jesus, but somehow along the way you have settled for a harmless, safe, comfortable religion that you've labeled as Christianity. But God is calling you to the very risky, world-changing, adventurous life of following Jesus, of discovering true meaning and purpose in God's call for your life to make a difference in this broken, desperate world. To get up off the proverbial, comfortable pew and to engage a broken world that desperately needs to know there's hope, that needs to know the great ascent will never be enough. That's why God descended to give life. So Father, with our heads bowed, I pray as people respond merely in their heart that their response would be transparent and authentic, whatever it is. It may have some anger to it towards you. It may have lots of questions. It may be filled with faith. But God, would you help each one of us in this room tonight respond with honesty, vulnerability, and transparency from our heart to you. And for those who are turning from living their own story to surrender their life fully to you as King and Lord, I thank you for new beginnings. I thank you for the start of something brand new in knowing you And that journey with you will unfold purpose in their lives. Lord, for Christians that you are shaking, stirring, afflicting maybe even, to move from such a comfortable place. God, I pray that your spirit will do the work that you do and that you will move us, oh God, to not be satisfied but to pursue you with reckless abandon and your mission to demonstrate love in our world, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. To ourselves, to give us life, to give us hope, may we live fully and completely for you and may we announce with the way we love that there is life and hope in Jesus, I pray, amen. Amen. Next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness. It's going to be a powerful weekend. So I hope that you'll come. Bring your friends. Thanks for letting me speak into your life. If you would like someone to pray with you, please come forward. Our prayer team's coming now. They'll pray with you. God bless you as you go.